thing we must acknowledge this morning is that the only hope for our country is Jesus. I thank God every election cycle that my hope is not found in the donkey or in the elephant. My hope is found in the lamb. You know, in most colleges in America, there's still a little bit of hazing that occurs. Um, I remember at Howard Payne, each year incoming students would voluntarily, voluntarily, become a little brother or sister to an upperclassman who would uh, be seen as their big brother or sister in an effort to be awarded the right to be a big brother or sister the next year. Um, and to earn your beanie. There was a beanie that you got to wear. And throughout this few-week period, it's two to three to four weeks, I forgot how long it was. I didn't do it. When I got there, I was an old man. So I, I, I wasn't, I don't know. Um, it was a two to three-week period, and these littles lived in constant expectation. There was this constant, this constant fear, this constant um, anxiousness of what was going to happen. Because at any minute, a, a big sister or a big brother, and it didn't have to be your own. It could be any big brother or sister could show up and force these littles to uh, kiss the ground. To fry like bacon. You know, that's to fall on the ground and sizzle. Um, to climb the nearest chair and sing the alma mater at the top of your lungs. Which usually happened in the dining hall. So everybody could see. All of these things would happen. And this all uh, took part. It all culminated in... Uh, what? They don't even have it anymore. It was called the gauntlet. It was the nastiest event I've ever seen in my life. It was a big mud hole that you had to crawl through. And they put food and condiments and mustard and ketchup. And I mean, it smelled horrible. And so Carrie wanted to go through it at one point. Did you go through the gauntlet? She went through the gauntlet. But I gave her some mentholatum to put under her nose so she could make it through because that way it took the smell. But I, I, I was, this all happened. And all week long, they would just go, when's it going to happen? When is somebody going to catch me? And some of them were really good about it and they didn't mind. And some of them were trying to run the class. They, you know, they want to make sure they didn't get caught somewhere. If you're not a singer, you do not want to sing the alma mater in the, in the middle of the dining hall. Or in the middle of a football game, or in the middle of chapel, or places like that, you know. Um, so you, you did what you had to do. And now, as we turn our attention in our series this week to a parable in the book of Mark, we see a different kind of parable. This parable is told not for the sake of the religious leaders, he tells this parable for his disciples. And Jesus has been talking about the end of the age, and he's been giving signs of what will occur in anticipation of this time. And in the midst of this conversation, Jesus tells us this parable of the faithful servant. And it's there in Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 32. It says, Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house gave authority to his slaves, and gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, or at midnight, or at the crowing of the rooster, or early in the morning. Otherwise, he might come suddenly and find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. Let's pray. Father God, we 
come to you right now and we thank you, we praise you for your blessings. Father, we come right now and ask that you would take this time and use it for your glory. Father, use me as a vessel of the words that I speak be yours and yours alone. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the freedoms that we had this morning to come and worship. Father, bless this time. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his sake and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. The first thing that we have to look, realize right out of the box here is that we're never going to figure out when Jesus will come back. Jesus starts this discourse with that statement. Yet I feel like sometimes we forget that point. Sometimes we spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out and read the signs and decide when he's coming back. You know, no one knows, he says. No one knows the day or the hour. No one knows what's going to happen. And it's this idea that nobody, not me, he says, not the angels, surely not us. Only the Father knows what will happen. Now, if this is the case, why do we spend so much time focusing on the end? Why do we spend so much time focusing on when it's going to happen? There are lives who were devoted to figuring out this day. I remember in, in school reading a book, and it was written in 18-something by John Adams. And he gave an exact date that Jesus was going to come back. That was about 100 and some odd years ago now. And so either we were all left behind, or Jesus didn't come back on that day. How, how often have we seen in our past 20 years people who will announce on TV, get ready, Jesus come back on this day. He's going to be here. There are whole denominations built on interpretations of when that day is. There's a certain denomination who is built on the teachings of a person who said Jesus was going to come back in the early 1900s. And when he didn't come back on that day after everyone had sold all their stuff and met him there to go, um, he claimed that Jesus had moved to a, a watchtower on the side of heaven, waiting to come back. There are ministries that flourish by creating charts and graphs and pictures, showing when the day will likely occur. But the problem, I believe, is we're missing the point of what Jesus is saying. Jesus begins by saying, all these events he's talked about previously that are going to happen, Wars and rumors of wars and all of these things. But the events that he describes are events that have already happened, that are happening, and that will continue to happen. Wars and rumors of wars. Earthquakes and famines. Persecution. Familial disputes. Even the abomination of the desolation isn't a singular event. If you read the apocryphal books, those are the books that happen between the Old Testament and New Testament that we don't think are Bible, but they're still history. In 1 Maccabees, there is a description of the abomination of desolation. Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, mid-2nd century B.C., he rode the biggest, fattest sow he could find into the middle of the temple and sacrificed him in the temple to Zeus in 167 B.C. Now, it's hard for me to think that God keeps talking about the same event over and over again. If that event has already happened, and those events are already happening, they continue to happen. And in the Gospels it says... Many people even pointing toward the actions of Roman general Titus as he destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. Once again, they look at Zeus. Domitian declared himself Dominus and Deus Roster, our Lord and God. If Jesus is explaining fairly common events that lead up to his day, and then says no one knows when it's going to happen, does it make sense that we're looking for that moment all the time? That we're continually hoping, well, you know, we could be ready. But why are we focused on? Jesus here isn't giving you something to watch for. 
He's giving you a reason not to focus on these things. That probably should have been a point, and I didn't make that a point. You can write that down. Jesus here isn't saying, watch for these things. Jesus is really saying, these things that always happen, don't focus on these things. Focus on living the life I've called you to live. Focus on what you need to do here. Focus on the here and now. What Jesus is saying is things are going to happen and they really don't matter. They're going to happen. They're going to continue to happen. And you're going to see these things happen. He says, be aware, be alert, know your surroundings. But you're never going to know until that moment comes. This is Jesus saying the signs of the end will happen, but don't focus on the signs. Focus on what you have, what you've been given, what you've been entrusted with. And then he gives us a three-verse parable. And of course, it's that both and meaning. Like many things in Scripture, the parable in this discourse is a both and meaning. There's a meaning for there and a meaning for us. Now what I'm going to ask you to do this morning may be difficult. I want you to clear your mind of everything you know about these passages. Now, now, now some of you may be thinking it's easy for me to clear my mind, but I wouldn't say that. But maybe you think that. Forget everything you've been taught about the end times. Look with me this morning at this passage and the things that I'm about to say with new eyes. Eyes that don't bring a backstory. Our biggest problem when we read scripture sometimes is we already know. And so let's read this as Jesus would say. So unless you think I walk away from this idea on my own, a lot of these things can also be found in a book called Shepherds and Bathrooms by a man named Thomas Long. I'm not the first person who ever believed this, who thinks these things. So let's look what this meant to the disciples. Jesus speaks of three things in this parable that we must do. Our assigned tasks to keep watch and don't be unprepared. So, for the disciples, there are things about to happen. He is not very far out here from his crucifixion. He's not very far out here from their entire world crumbling, from things falling apart. If you have followed a man for three and a half years and he has taken care of your every need and he is so important to you and you have this belief that he is going to save you from Roman rule. And in just a few days, that's going to fall apart. And Jesus knows it. And Jesus tells this parable. To the disciples, he says, these four specific times when the master could return. There's four times. He says, well, the master could return in the evening. <clears throat> One chapter over in Mark 14, it says, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. One who is eating me. Do not be unprepared. The master could return at midnight. Now, the later on the night of the supper, in the middle of the night, where's Jesus at? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he poured out his soul in anguish to God, leaving his disciples just a short distance away to pray and to keep watch. And he turns and finds them sleeping, and he says, Are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? He's just said, He's just told them, Do not be unprepared. But yet again, they're asleep. He says, maybe the master will come when the rooster crows. <laughs> In a chapter, what's going to happen to Peter? Before the rooster crows, he denies Jesus three times. Be prepared. They'll be caught off guard. The master could come at dawn. Very early in the morning, Jesus was bound and led away to the events that would bring his death. Be prepared. They'll be caught off guard. I think part of this was Jesus saying to the disciples, there are some things that are fixing to happen. The end of the age is fixing to happen. The day of the Lord is fixing to happen because for them, the end of the age and the day of the Lord meant that something major was about to change. 
Their lives were about to change. Jesus wasn't going to stay the person he had been. Jesus at that point was a friend and he was a teacher and he was fixed to be their Lord and Master. He was changing everything. For the disciples, this parable is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the next few hours. They're not something out there. The day of the Lord isn't something out there. The end of the ages isn't something out there for them. It's something that's going to happen when that sacrifice was made. Jesus was telling his closest friends, be prepared for what's fixing to happen. Be prepared. It's all great and good, but what is there for us? He's talking to the disciples and he says those things, but what about us? What does the parable have to do with us? You know, one age ended as Jesus died on that cross. But a new age begins three days later. Three days later, the church age begins. Three days later, Jesus is resurrected and we have the power to find freedom and his sacrifice. Three days later, everything changes. An age that will itself come to an end. An age that we live in. And sometime it's going to end and the signs of its destruction are the same. Wars and rumors of wars. Earthquakes. Did you know... I don't want to get up into Revelation. Stop. <laughs> the point's the same. The signs are going to happen, and the end will happen, but don't focus on the signs. Focus on what you have, what you've been given, what you've been entrusted to. And with that in mind, we have three things we can glean from our lives from this parable. First, we must be about our work. We must be about our work. When the master left the house and left the servants, he didn't just say, y'all take care of it, I'll be back. It says he gave them each a job. He said, you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and you do this. And they had a job to do. He expected them to do that job. You, you, you parents with older kids, did you ever leave the house and say, clean the house while I'm gone? You expected it to be that way when you got home. Maybe you didn't expect it to be that way. But you told them to do it. And if it wasn't done, there were going to be consequences. There was always a job given. If your boss at work comes in and says, I want you to do this, and you don't do it, there's a consequence. The master had left, and he had said, okay, here are the tasks. Here are the things that I want to be done with in this household. This was the work that needs to be accomplished. The master didn't close his house because he was gone. He didn't say, I'm going on a trip. Y'all take a vacation. Y'all go do what you need to do. But too many Christians today think that's what Jesus did. He said, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going to heaven to prepare a place. I'm going on, I'm going on a trip. Y'all just kick back and relax until I come back. It's not what the master said. The master gave tasks. He said, think about your work. Jesus hasn't closed up shop because he isn't physically here. There are tasks to complete. There is work to be done. Things that we're expected to do. Things that he wanted. If we spend all of our time focused on the signs, we can't do the work given us by our master. You know, have you ever had one of those weeks where there was something you needed to get done, but all these other things had to be done too? And so they kept taking away from the things that needed to be done here. And you kept saying, I need to get this done, but first I need to do this. But first I need to do that. But first, the first, the first, and there's always a but first somewhere. And that always happens. But if we're choosing to always look at the signs, if we're choosing always to focus on the end, we have a problem. I love the story of the ascension, but I probably read it differently than most people do. Jesus ascends into heaven. And it must have been an amazing sight. Because the disciples stand there going. They're just in awe of what they've seen. They're just standing there. I don't know how long they stood there. 
looking into heaven. I hear that the angels appeared and said, um, go. Go where he told you to go. You're not going to miss it when he comes back, I promise. He's going to come back in the same way that he left. You're not going to miss it. Go and do what he told you to do. That's, that's my paraphrase. But that's what they told him. You know, I mean, the, the disciples were like, we better watch. And then all through the, the New Testament, we found people who were worried about that. First Thessalonians had one of the greatest funeral passages, right? It talks about what we call the rapture there. That with the, with the trumpet sound and all about the dead cross the rise first. But if you read the context, what's, what's Paul saying? He's saying they're not going to miss it. You can't miss it. You can't miss when Jesus comes back. He's going to come back and it's going to be there. Be about your work. So as the faithful servant, we have to be about our work. Second thing he says is we have to keep watch for the things that God wants us to see. Keep watch for the things that God wants us to see. Huh. Yeah, there are a lot of things to see in this world. Doesn't mean just watch for Jesus' return. The job of the guard wasn't simply to watch for when the master came back. The job of the doorman was to keep those out who shouldn't be there. Make sure the master's household is taken care of. He says, keep watch. For what? For the ungodly. We live in a world that floods us with ungodly things. It floods us with all of this trash. And it's hard to weed out. And it's not just R-rated movies. There used to be, you could have a rule in your house that I'm not going to watch anything that's R-rated. And you'd be okay. Then it went PG-13. And you'd be okay. <laughs> Before our kids watch movies today, even if they're G, we have to read them to see what's in it. To know what the world is trying to put into their minds. That's crazy. But it's there. We have to keep watch. We can find lists all through the New Testament of the things that we're to watch for. Sexual immorality, impure thoughts, dishonesty. The list goes on. And one of those lists, murderers and those who disobey their parents are on the same list. That's scary. Because I disobey my parents, so that makes me bad as a murderer, according to Scripture. That's what Scripture says. That's the same list. We're supposed to watch out for these things. We're supposed to watch out for those who attack. Jesus warned us about false teachers. We're to keep watch for people who would attack the integrity of the church and the Word of God. Have you looked at churches today? Now, the name on, on the church doesn't really tell you anything anymore. I can go to Baptist churches who have thrown out the Word of God. And I can go to Episcopalian churches who are clinging tightly to it and have re rejected everything the world's telling them to reject. We can't know anymore about what's on the side. We are, to, we are to watch for those things and to, to stand up for the integrity of the church and the Word of God. We can't let people say, well, I 
I've even heard this argument. Well, that was a book written a long time ago by a bunch of different people. And so, uh, the Word of God I'm not sure about. Okay? It's a book written thousands of years ago by lots of different people. But it all agrees. That's an impossibility without the God being in the source. There's no way it all agrees without God being the source. Shoot. Me and Carrie have been married almost 19 years and we still don't agree on everything. I'm wrong most of the time. Which tells me at least. I mean, you know, I, you know, I mean that's just it. That, I, I, you know, and we, we, we disagree. The Bible, if it was just a book of my men, would disagree at some point. People would start going, well, you know, that doesn't make any sense. And people want to make cases like that. Oh, well, James and Paul say two different things. No, they don't. No, they really don't. Paul believes in grace through faith. James believes in grace through faith. But James says, if you have faith, I'll see it. And Paul says the same thing. He just doesn't say it with the same words. They agree. But we also have to be on watch for the master to return. That's the last thing he says. Not simply long for his return. Not to simply say, oh, I hope he comes back. But to have his household prepared. The guard watched so they could have things ready so they wouldn't have to rush to finish at the end. Okay. Wives, have you ever had that time where your husband came home and said, oh, so-and-so's coming to dinner. I forgot. I, I didn't tell you until now. And you go rushing around the house to make sure it's all put up where, where you want it to be because, you know, I, I've, I've done that on accident before. Um, it happens. And we run around, you know. But, but in this era, the watchman would have watched and he would have seen the master coming a ways off. They would have known. They were watching to make sure everything was prepared. We are called to make sure everything's prepared. We have, we have a job to do. People are out there dying and going to hell, and, and we need to be doing what we're supposed to do. But we also, he says, must stay prepared so we won't be caught off guard. Sleeping in the Bible is a generic way of saying someone was caught off guard and not prepared to do their job. If you were asleep, you were done. When we read over in, in the epistles with Paul, and when Paul is writing things, and you see the account of him being in prison, and the doors open, and the jailer wakes up, and he goes what? He goes to kill himself. Why? Because if a Roman guard was caught sleeping on the job, he was going to be killed anyway. And Paul said, no, stop, we're still here. We haven't gone anywhere. We can't be unprepared. Sleeping is just saying, you know, we cannot be Sleeping in our post. Some sources also say those caught sleeping at other times, besides not at, on their post, were stripped naked and sent home as a disgrace. Sleeping when you were to be watching is disgraceful. That's what Jesus' words are. Keep watch. You know, maybe this morning you've been caught up in the silence. Maybe you've been looking for, you know, that next sign. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm watching, I'm watching things in the Middle East. I'm watching this. I'm watching that. 
You know, ever since Jacob and Esau, those people have been fighting. It, it, it had never stopped. I mean, you know, you know, you can go back farther. You can go back to Isaac and Ishmael if you want to. I love the story of Joseph because he sold the who Ishmaelites. He sold to his cousins to take him to slavery in Egypt. Those, those people have always been warring. Jesus says, don't worry about those signs. You do what you're supposed to do. Keep watch. Be about your business. Do what I've called you to do. Save the lost. Feed the hungry. Be a friend to those who are lonely. If we can be the hands and feet of Jesus, when he comes back, it won't matter. I, I had a friend, a youth minister, somebody one time asked me, he said, you need to always live with the question in your mind, if Jesus came back while I was doing this, how would I feel? It's Jesus. I don't know if I'm ever going to feel worthy no matter what I'm doing. But there's some truth to that. If we live our life being about our business, doing what God has called us to do, when Jesus comes back, it's not going to matter when he comes back. It's not going to matter how it looks. Because we will be there and he will see us and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Maybe this morning you want to pray. The altar's open. I'll pray with you. Maybe you want to start a mission or ministry. Maybe you want to join this church of membership. Maybe this morning you've never known Jesus as your Savior. Maybe you've never known the true freedom that comes from accepting Him and saying, Jesus, I want to know You. I want to be clean. Now's the time. Wherever you're, whatever you have this morning, whatever your need is, give it to Him. Would you pray for me? Father God, we come to You right now. We thank You and we praise You for Your blessings.